All right, Boker Tov. This is going to be our last class for a little bit. I'm going away uh, next week, so we'll resume in August, assuming uh, anyone's interested in resuming. No video cast from but we'll, Israel? No video cast from Israel, but we'll take over then. What I want to do for our, uh, this, our last uh, week together, and Parshas Korach, is a little bit different than what we usually do, which is to go through the Pesukim and the Mepharshim. But I want to share with you the approach that Rabbi Salavechik had to the issue of Korach. It's a famous essay that was written he gave it as a lecture, but it was written as an essay in Rabbi Bezdin's book, Reflections of the Rav, Volume 1. He called it the Common Sense Rebellion, Korach's Common Sense Rebellion. But it's really a brilliant and fascinating uh, approach and interpretation to the whole episode that's going on, because it's difficult to understand. It's really difficult to pinpoint exactly what was bothering Korach, what is the source of his rebellion, what is the, how does he garner a following. Here you have Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron who successfully extract the Jewish people from the bondage of Egypt. They've taken them through these incredible miracles. They've experienced redemption. And now Korach rises with a sense of uh, rebelliousness. Why would people go with Korach? Who's Korach compared to Moshe and Aaron? If people are going to stake their future with one or the other, how does Korach garner a following? What is his argument? What is his approach? How does he get people to go with him? So what's really going on here? What's really going on here? Um... Rabbi Salvechik felt that the issue of Korach is a early precedent for a modern phenomenon that we see. Even today, you have many, many Jews whose attitude and approach to Torah is, isn't it enough to be a good person? Can't I do the things, the mitzvahs, the spiritual activities that make me feel good, that I find enriching, that elevate me? What's with all the details? What's with all the nuances? What's with all the rules? What's with all... What do I need the, the, the minutia? I, things that feel good for me, I'll do. Things that don't, I won't. And we have in contemporary times, in fact, denominations and movements of Judaism that have basically taken that attitude and approach towards Torah and towards Halacha. That Halacha is not objectively, absolutely binding, but it's a system through which one has to find what feels good, what works for them, and embrace that. And there's kind of a, a pick-and-choose uh, approach that's permissible. So Rabbi Salavechik said that's not a modern phenomenon. Lest we think that this was born in the last uh, century or two, this finds its roots all the way back in, in Korach. What was Korach's rebellion? What was the root of what, of what, uh, of what caused him to rebel? So the Pesukim themselves are, are somewhat uh, ambiguous. Rashi fills us in a little bit when Rashi tells us what his argument was. If you look in, in uh, Perek Tezai, in the beginning of the parasha, Vayikach Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kas ben Levi, V'dasan va'aviram b'nei Eliyav, V'on ben Pelas b'nei Ruvain. What did they take? There's so much to talk about with each of these things. Vayikach, right? What does it mean? What did they take? So Rashi was bothered by that already. Vayikach Korach. Lokach es atzmo letzar acher lios nechlach mitok nechlach mitocha eida. Vayikach means he took himself. They went aside. He took himself and he made himself an adversary. I think it's a very, very powerful message. What Rashi is saying, is, you see, there's two types of criticism that one can offer. An internal criticism and an external criticism. One can have a form of criticism in which their goal is to improve. And they're coming as an advocate. And as an advocate, they say, I think we can improve in A, B, C, and D. I think you should think about X, Y, and Z would make things better here. Here's my constructive criticism. As an insider, I want a partner in making it better. That's a criticism from advocacy. But there's also a criticism that could come, not from advocacy, but by becoming a 
adversary. Korach, Vayikach, Korach, Rashi says, he took himself from the advocate role, from the insider role, and he turned himself, Letzad Acher, Lios Nechlak Mitocha Eida. He became an adversary. His criticism wasn't a, with the goal of improving, his criticism was with the goal of breaking down. And you see this all the time. I see it all the time. My uh, role in the community. But in any community organization, in any organization you see this. There are people who come with constructive criticism from the inside with the goal of improving. Or the vayikach. They take themselves out from being on the inside to becoming an outsider whose goal is to break it down. They become an adversary. And often, like Korach, they're not satisfied with doing it alone. They try to garner a following and bring other people with them. Lo'orer ala kahuna, says Rashi. He wanted to challenge the institution of Kahuna, the priesthood. Unkos writes Ve'yikach, which means to take, but Unkos writes Viz Peleg. What is plag? Is to separate, is to make a distinction and a difference, is to break in half. Is a half. Korach broke away, basically. Breakaway minions minatora minayim. Where is the origin of a breakaway minion? Korach. First breakaway. This plague. He broke away. Nechlak He broke away in order to create and establish a sense of machlokas. Okay. So how, the first how, how did he convince these people that he had Oh, we'll get to that. So Vayikach means he took himself away. Dosan Vaviram as well. In uh, continue with Rashi, Vidasan Vaviram. Bishvil Shaya Shevin Ruven Shari Bachaniasan Taimana, Shachin Lekahas, Ubanov Hachonim Taimana, Nishtatfu im Korach Bimachlakuso. How did Dasan Vaviram get into this mix? Korach has been Yitzar ben Kahas ben Levi, I understand that. Dasan Vanaviram ben Eliav How'd they get in the mix? So Rashi's telling us. You know how they got in the mix? They were neighbors. They were neighbors. Shevet Ruvain was a neighbor with Shevet Levi. So they were next to, to uh, Korach. And you see, even the placement in the camp that God himself had designated, if you're not careful who you hang out with, if we're not cautious, vigilant, who our influences are, you're going to go down with the ship. Umara Korach Moshe. What was the origin of Korach's Machlokas? Rashi says, Neskanan siyuso shil el tzifan ben uziyah shemino Moshe nasiyah ben ekas apiyah dibur. Korach was unhappy with the appointment. Moshe had appointment, appointed Eli Tzafan to be the prince, the head of uh, Kahas, the family of Kahas. So Amar Korach, Achei Abba Arba Ahayu. My father had four brothers. Shnemro ben Kahas, Omram HaBachor, Says there, there are five brothers. You got one made himself a king, Kohen Gadol. I should be the next in line. He skipped over me. Forget about it. So what did he do? Okay, Rashi Sanhedrios Ruba Mishavit Ruben Shchenav Elitzur Ben Shteyur Chaverach Yosevosh Nemar Nesiyah Eda Kreim Oed Ulala Nomer Ela Kreim Eda. So what what uh, what was the root of the rebellion? So the first simple understanding of Rashi is it's at the root of many machloksim. What's the source of many 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 debates and fights and conflicts? What is it? 
Ego. Ego, but I would describe it as honor. It was his pursuit of honor. He says, well, what are you skipping over me? I'm the next in line. I do honor. How could you skip over me? Honor, ego, self-centeredness is very, very, very often at the root of machlok. Because that's what the Mishnah in Pirkei Elvis warns us to differentiate and distinguish between a machlokas l'shem shemaim and shalol l'shem shemaim. Shalol l'shem shemaim, who does the Mishnah bring in characterizing it? Korach v'adaso. By the way, it's interesting. Machlokas l'shem shemaim, it says, who's the example? Hello and Shammai. Machlokas l'shem shemaim, who's the example? Korach. It says, Korach v'adaso. It's not a parallel. Hillel and Shammai were adversaries. The Machlokas was between the two. Korach v'adaso were on the same team. Why doesn't it mention Korach v'adaso against Moshe and Aaron? Mishnah Navas doesn't mention it that way. Why? Because it takes two to tango. Because Moshe and Aaron weren't in the Machlokas. Korach v'adaso were in the Machlokas. In a Machlokas l'shem shamayim, in a debate, in a conflict that is, has pure intentions, so there's no ego. So there's no shame in mentioning Hillel and Shammai. They had a debate, and it was genuine, honest for the good. You could have board members of the shul, you could have a husband and wife who disagree, and it's L'shem Shamayim. What is the best place for the children to go to school? What's the best way to spend their summer? Where should they, uh, who should they invite for the Shabbos meal? It's L'shem Shamayim, there's no ego involved. They're trying to figure out what's best. It's calm, it's not ad hominem, it's a, it's a, it's a discussion perhaps lively, but for the uh, it's genuine and sincere, not personal. So Hillel and Shammai, there's no shame in mentioning both their names. But Korach Vadaso, they weren't at, in a debate against uh, Moshe. They were in a debate. It was their ego. Moshe was not uh, was not playing the game. That's the first also, interpretation. Also, they're not arguing about Moshe and Aaron getting the, the kahuna, etc. Their cell phone is like right. a side bar. Right. Although they're, they're the protagonist, Later. the one they're arguing against is Moshe. It could have listed him. This. Right. But it doesn't even list him. The second thing, and this is what I wanted to get to, continuing in Rashi, So what was Korach's strategy? He put his following together, he put his group together, and they all wore a talus that was made exclusively of the color tchelis. Normally our talus is white, and on the fringes we have tchelis. They put on a beged, they put on the garment, it was all tchelis. They came and appeared before Moshe. They said, said, we're wearing the garment, the four-cornered garment itself is all made of tchelis. It's all turquoise. Is it obligated in tzitzis or is it exempt? So Amr Moshe responded, what's the halacha? Chayavas, said it's obligated. They began to laugh at him. So they laughed at him. They said, what are you talking about? Normally, if you're wearing a white four-cornered garment, if you have one blue string on the corner, it exempts the entire garment. So now that you have a garment which is entirely tcheles, do you need any strings at all? That's ridiculous. They scoffed at him, they ridiculed him, they laughed at him, they said that's absurd, they dismissed him. That's Rashi. The Medrash actually continues, the Medrash Bamid Barab, and it gives another example. Korach had a room that was filled with Sifrei Torah. It's an interesting Medrash, because I don't know how you could have a room filled with Sifrei Torah, because arguably there were no Sifrei Torah yet at this point. Moshe had not yet combined all the scrolls that he was writing in the Oa Moed to form the original Sefer Torah. So what does it mean that he had a room full of Sefer Torah? Okay. But he had a room full of Sefer Torah and he calls Moshe and he says, Moshe, I've got a room here full of Sefer Torah. What was his question? Do I need a mezuzah? 
So Moshe said, of course, that's the halacha. You have a room, you need a mezuzah. So Korach and his group laughed at him. So what are you talking about? Mezuzah has in it one paragraph, Shema, and it's enough to exempt the room. If I have a room that has the totality of Torah, many times over, many Sifrei Torah, it's absurd, why would I need a mezuzah? He, he laughed, he scoffed, he ridiculed, he rejected. So Rabbi Soloveitchik said, what's going on? Rashi, the Medrash, Rashi's really quoting the Medrash. What are these two examples? What was Korach getting at? What was his methodology in laughing at saying, if I'm wearing a garment, if I have a room full of Sifrei Torah, what was really going on? What was at the root, at the core of his rebellion? So if you look, even when, when Korach articulates his argument, Pasuk Gimel, what does Korach say? Interesting, at this point it's not just Korach. It's he and his Eida are Vayikahalu. They, they uh, come as a, they, as a group, they gather up against him. What are they trying to do? So this is an age-old, age-old methodology and it continues until today. It's called bullying. They try to bully. Korach can't do it alone. Korach knows that he won't have any um, success himself. So he puts together a group. And now they come as a group to try to bully. They come to bully. You've got a lot. The whole Eidah, everybody is holy. And Hashem is in the midst of everyone. Why are you in charge? Why are you placing yourself? Why are you forcing your leadership? Why are you forcing your leadership? So what was the argument? Kulam Kedoshim. Everyone is holy. Look at Rashi, Kulam Kedoshim. Kulam Shamu Dvarim Basina Piagvura. He says, what makes you different than everybody else? What are you going to say? That you had an inside track on Torah? We were all present at Sinai. We all heard the Torah given. We all heard Hashem give it. Everyone was present. The Sforno adds, Mikaf Rosh. Kulam Kedoshim. Everyone from our top of our head to the bottom of our feet. We're all holy. We're all the creation of Hashem. So what makes you special? You think you're categorically different? You think you're categorically better, superior to us? We all come from the same place. We all were witness to the Torah being given at our Sinai. We all have a, a Tzalem Elohim within us. You're no better. Okay, they didn't have that level of access. They didn't have that level of access. But they, were, they all felt that they were at our Sinai. What was really Korach getting at? So Rabbi Salvechik put it the following way. He says, Korach was arguing freedom from centralized authority. Freedom from centralized authority. And you have to understand, this is an incredibly enticing, sed- seductive, and uh, popular idea. It's a human trait. He's telling everybody, why do we have one person giving us rules? Why is there one centralized authority who is adjudicating all of our disputes, who is, uh, who is um, boss. who is the boss? Why is he legislating law? Why is he the sole arbiter of our system? Who is he? He's not superior in any way to, we are, to who we are. So what Korach was trying to argue was freedom, he was trying to promise freedom from centralized authority. And that's the root and core of any rebellion, is to say, someone else is ruling over you, someone else is a master over you, enslaving you, and they're no better. They're not entitled to. And at the root and the core of rebellion is the argument of personal autonomy, that he is trying to take away your personal autonomy. 
rebel because you have a right to determine your own determine your own future. Is this an argument for democracy? Is it going to be totalitarian? It's more than an argument for democracy because we'll see in a moment. Korach went about to propagandize his idea. He went about to try to convince more and more people to create this revolution and this rebellion. Freedom from a centralized authority. Freedom from, from Moshe because he's no better. He's no different. Now the issue is, Korach is not just some uh, hoodlum off the street. Korach himself, first of all, has very distinguished lineage. But Korach, furthermore, moreover, is considered to be a, a Talmud Chacham, and he's considered to be very intelligent. Look at Rashi, Pasuk Zayin. Rashi says, Rav lachem b'nei levi, davar gadol amarti lachem, lo tipshem hayu, shekach isra bahem v'kiblu aleim l'karev, so the answer is Korach was a pikeach. He was smart, he was bright, he was intelligent. He wasn't a tipesh, he was no fool. He was no hoodlum. So he was intelligent. So why couldn't he realize that there were some areas that he had no intelligence? He wasn't trained to build a mishkan. He wasn't trained in the halachic system and framework. If he was so intelligent, why didn't he recognize his limitations? Why is he coming today and arguing uh, against Moshe, that Moshe is not superior, that we all are entitled? What was really going on? So in order to explain this, Soloveitchik said, you have to understand, there are three terms that we have for knowledge. Three terms that we have for knowledge. And the example, you see this in a number of places, but the place that Rabbi Soloveitchik drew from was the appointment of B'Tzalel. When B'Tzalel is chosen at a young age to be the architect of the Mishkan, God identifies him as having three character traits. Chachma, Bina, and Da'as. Now you may notice an acronym of those three words. Chachma, Bina, and Da'as. And they are, of course, Chabad. They are the root and core of Chabad. Why that is... For another time and for somebody who is in a better position to explain it. But Chachma Bina Udas. What is the difference? Three terms that seem at synonyms synonymous for knowledge. Obviously we don't have synonyms in the Hebrew language. There's at least a subtle nuanced difference between them. So what's the difference between Chachma, Bina, and Das? How would you define the three? So Rabbi Salavitchik said Chachma is specialized knowledge and scholarship acquired by extensive and detailed study. A person who is a Chacham has extensive, comprehensive knowledge in a particular area or field. Chachma is a field of knowledge. You have attained a Chachma. If you know physics or chemistry, or if you're a master of uh, whatever area, specialized area, criminal law, you have attained that Chachma. Chachma is an area of knowledge, specialized knowledge and scholarship. Bina is something altogether different. Bina is the capacity to analyze. It is the ability to make distinctions. It's the ability to draw inferences and to apply them to various situations. Think about it for a moment. Who do we ascribe with having great Bina? In fact, Bina Yaseira, they have extra Bina. Women. Women. The Pasuk says, Vayiven esatzela, when God created women, Vayiven esatzela. 
man and woman were one androgynous figure. When God created Adam, it was half man and half woman as one figure. And when God decided to split them, it doesn't say He split them in two. It doesn't say He extracted woman from man. It says, What does mean, literally? To build. So the Gemara Nida says, what do, you mean? what do you mean to build? Why does it say vayiven? It should have said vayivra, vayitzer. What do you mean vayiven? So the Gemara says it's a, it's a hint, it's an illusion. The term vayiven is bina. Bina yaseira. That women were given an extra level of bina. Women have this extra intuition. Woman's intuition. The ability to draw inferences to various situations. The ability to make distinctions. The ability to see what's going on beneath the surface. That's bina. So chachma is memorization. Can be memorization. Chachma is, I have attained wisdom in a particular area. Bina is not just the book knowledge and the book smarts. Bina is the capacity to analyze, make distinctions, draw inferences, and apply. What's das? How is das different than the first two? No. Rabbi Salavitchik said das is common sense. Das has nothing to do with a field of study, and das has nothing to do with analysis. Das is common sense, basic intelligence, sound practical judgment. You don't need to have bina or chachma to have das. Das is, do you have common sense? Common sense in life. Sound, practical, basic judgment. That's the difference. So chachma is wisdom, attaining a certain level of wisdom and knowledge. Bina is the capacity to analyze. And das is common sense. Now the question is, where does Torah fall? Is Torah a field of chachma? Is it bina? Or is it das? Now obviously to a certain extent you're going to say that Torah has aspects of all three. You got to know Baba Kama, Baba Metziah, Baba Basra, it's Chachma. You got to attain it. If you want to be a Gadol Batorah, if you want to be great in Torah, you have to have Bina. You have to have the capacity for analysis, for Lamdas. And Das, if you don't have Das, you're going to have struggle to have Bina and Chachma. So obviously, to a certain degree, it's all three. But, but which one is it, is it clearly not? So this is what Rabbi Salavitchik said was Korach's rebellion. Korach felt only Das and not Chachma is involved in the application of Halacha. He argued that there's a psychological and emotional aspect in the, pra- in the practice of Halacha and the observance of mitzvahs. To him, Halacha, God gave us a Torah. And the purpose of Torah is to animate and to inspire and to enrich our lives. And it, it's common sense to do the things that in a common sense way add meaning to my life. It's got to work for me psychologically and emotionally. It's got to work in my common sense. There's no area or field of wisdom which is outside of myself. Torah is intuitive. Torah is personally meaningful. It's not that I need to study within a system, but he therefore challenged Moshe on the basis. That's what he meant. We all are holy. We're all endowed with the same basic common sense as you, Moshe. And we each have our own psychological, spiritual, emotional makeup. Your interpretation of Torah is no better than ours. And therefore, why should we follow the way you conclude halacha? Maybe halacha is different from me. I have a different psychological, emotional, spiritual makeup. And maybe my filter, maybe my way in which I absorb Torah is different. My common sense dictates different conclusions than yours. Who says you're right? 
What Korach was essentially advocating was what's called today religious subjectivism. That one's personal feelings are primary in religious experience. It's my feelings that count. Religious subjectivism. What are you telling me, don't wear shatnas? That doesn't do anything for me. What are you telling me, don't uh, do this or don't do that? I have to do what means things, what's meaningful to me. You see this a lot today, particularly with the youth who are rebelling in a rebellion similar to Korach. It's, rebel- it's religious subjectivism. What are you adults forcing me to subscribe to a thousands-year-old uh, system of Torah? What does that have to do with my life? I only want to do the things that are meaningful for me, that elevate me, that inspire me. Religious subjectivism, my personal feelings, are primary in religious experience. Your religious experience can't be dictated to me. I have to journey to figure out my own religious experience. Now you understand that first of all, Korach wasn't necessarily wicked or evil. There is something pure that motivates this rebellion. Because there is a craving and a longing for a personal religious expression. That's not... It might be distorted. That might be different than than what we view as the authentic system of Torah, which we'll get to in a moment. But there can be something pure as a kernel motivating, driving it. A desire for genuine, personal religious expression. That's A. But B, you can also understand why it's so appealing. Why it's so appealing. That he started to have a following. Because if you're sitting there and you have rules dictated to you, and somebody says... What are you? Why is someone dictating the rules to you and asking you to live a lifestyle that's not so meaningful? Shouldn't we just do the things that are meaningful for us? Shouldn't we have a greater sense of autonomy and personal authority instead of a centralized authority? You say, yeah, you're right. We should. And you're right. I do. And that's what I want. He began to find a following. You see, according to Korach's theory, the mitzvah would have to correspond with the mood that prompts it. And if specific mitzvah ceased having an impact, their observance would be open to question. New rituals would have to be created to take their place. Mitzvahs would be finite and would be subject to time and place. And that's what Korach was arguing. That's what Korach was arguing. And that's what his argument, that's what the Rav applies to the examples of Tcheles and Mezuzah. Why was he laughing at Moshe? Because he was applying his common sense. If a garment is all dyed turquoise, why would it need this one string on the, the fringes on the corner? It doesn't make sense to me. If one string exempts the whole garment, shouldn't the whole garment being that color exempt it? Why do I need a mezuzah on this room? If one paragraph exempts the room, shouldn't a room full of Sifrei Torah, the totality of Torah, exempt the room? What was at the root of that argument, says the Rav? Common sense. Da'as. Not Chachma. Korach said, there's no chachma. There's no bina necessary. Das. And your das is no greater than mine. Your common sense is no greater than mine. And my common sense dictates that it's silly to have a mezuzah when I have Sefer Torah in the room. It's silly to require tzitzis in the corners when the beged is kulot chelis. But isn't that also bina? Isn't that also? Bina. Um, no. He, well, he was trying to analyze it was, his, it was his common sense he said if you think about it in common sense why should you need it this way what's our response to Korach what's the traditional response to Korach about how we uh, how do we defend Moshe's position in Torah and why Korach was wrong 
So the traditional response is that there are two levels in religious observance. There's the outer objective mitzvah, and there's a subjective inner experience that accompanies it. And that Korach is half right. We should seek and aspire to attain feeling and emotion and spirituality and growth in the observance of the mitzvah. Our mood, its impact on us is critically important. The mitzvah should not just be some dry, rote, external performance that has nothing to do with how I'm feeling internally. Of course, Korach is right, half right, that the mitzvah should be something that transforms us. But while that's the goal of the result of the mitzvah, the outer objective performance of the mitzvah is critically important as well. One without the other is lacking. Both are necessary for the genuine religious experience. You see, the mitzvah doesn't depend on emotion. The mitzvah is designed to induce the emotion. The mitzvah should not be the result of, I feel like doing this, so I'm going to do it. Because what's the danger of that? You know what the danger is? If you don't feel like doing it, you're not going to do it. And most often, you're not going to feel like doing it. It's like the people who say, why do I need to be obligated to pray every day three times a day? Prayer is very personal. I pray when I feel like it. I pray when it's meaningful for me. So if you ask the average person who advances that argument, how often would you say you pray? It's not too often. It's not too often. God forbid somebody's deathly ill or sick. The job, trying to get a job, trying to get pregnant, trying to, hoping to get married to this girl or to this guy. You pray when you need something. But how often are you going to pray if it is entirely dependent on your mood? The mood shouldn't induce the mitzvah. The mitzvah is designed to induce the mood. It's the mitzvah that's been divinely prescribed and halachically formulated. In teaching the halacha, chachma is decisive. Chachma tells us first and foremost, this is an area of absolute truth. Now go use your das, go use your bina, to try to understand the deeper meaning, the deeper purpose, how it could inspire you, how it could transform you. But you have to begin with an unadulterated loyalty and fidelity to the Chachma of Torah. Torah is a Chachma. It cannot be diluted, it cannot be distorted, it cannot be uh, something which is manipulated. Torah is a Chachma. There is an absolute truth to it. A doorway needs a mezuzah, period. Now use your Da'as to analyze and understand what kind of doorway, what kind of room, what purpose in the room, why mezuzah, why was Shema chosen, what is the message it is to send me. Use the Bina and Da'as to induce the emotional experience. But it has to begin with an unequivocal, unconditional loyalty and fidelity to the Chachma of Torah that is most decisive. And that was Korach's mistake. Korach skipped over the Chachma of Torah, the wisdom of Torah as a field, as a body of knowledge, that's absolute truth, and he skipped right to Das. Common sense. I want to apply it and interpret it in a way that's meaningful for me. I want to do it when, when I am moved by the mood. Why not allow religious experience expression to depend on emotion? Why is Korach's attitude not only wrong, but dangerous? Why is it dangerous? So there's a lot of different reasons. First of all, religious emotion is volatile. It's ever-changing. It's unstable. A mitzvah would perpetually be modified. You would never have a real pure mitzvah per se. You'd constantly be modifying it 
to your where you live and the time in which you live and who you are and your attitudes and your politics and your philosophy, you would lose the concept of a pure mitzvah that is a mitzvah. The mitzvah would consistently be modified to fit the person. Number two, each person feels and experiences differently. Korach's attitude, you know what it would yield? The result of a Korach approach would be the destruction of community. You could never have a concept of community. And one of the primary principal core values of Judaism is the concept of community. You can never have a community service. I don't just mean davening. You can never have a communal mitzvah service because everyone would experience it differently. Everyone would want it differently. Everyone would look at it differently. Everyone would design it for themselves differently. It would be different for everybody. And therefore you can never have something which is collective and which is communal. And that's so critically important to us. The importance of the community. For example, take davening. Why do we daven in Hebrew? A language with which many of us are familiar, but certainly not our first language. Why? Why do we have a sitter? Ditch the sitter, ditch the Hebrew, turn to God once in a while when you feel like it, and talk to Him from your heart. So first of all, the answer is correct. You should do that. You should talk to Him from your heart, and that should complement what you do from the sitter. But why the sitter? And why the Hebrew? And you know what the answer is? Because if you got rid of a sitter, and you got rid of Hebrew, you would lose a sense of community. When I daven with a sitter, when I daven in Hebrew, whether with a minion or by myself, I am transcending time, I am transcending space. It is something which is absolutely incredible. When I daven in Hebrew, I'm not just davening by myself, Ephraim Goldberg and Boca Raton in 2011. When I daven in Hebrew, I am connecting with those who have lived for the last thousands of years and those who are yet to live. When I daven from the sitter, I am transcending geography. You know what's remarkable? Somebody, anyone who's lived, at least since the time of Anshay Knesset Agadola, if they came back to life, somebody who was lived 1,500 years ago, came back to life and joined Shachars at Boker Tom Synagogue today, they would feel 100% at home. They'd have to decide do they want to go to the Ashkenazi minion or the Sephardi minion. They would pick their nuanced details, but they would, you'd speak a common language, you'd follow a common format, you'd have a lot in common. What other religion, nationality, people do you see that? We transcend time, we transcend space, we transcend geography, and the sitter and our allegiance to Hebrew have what allowed us to do that. And we say, you know what? As challenging as it is to always repeat the same words and do it in a language which is not your first language, the benefit of maintaining community far outweighs whatever challenge comes by davening from the sitter. And besides which, you're supposed to put in your own personal thoughts and prayers in whatever language you want anyway. So we're not asking you to forfeit your autonomy within davening. We're asking you to use it to complement the sense of community. So davening is just one example. If Korach got his way, you could never have a minion. You could never have community. It would be, Judaism would be a random conglomerate of individuals each finding their own way into what is meaningful for them. And without without being dismissive or judging other denominations, but those denominations which have promoted personal autonomy and a movement away from centralized authority, those denominations in Judaism which have promoted that do what feels good and is meaningful for you as the individual, what is left of their community? 
It's dying, it is declining, the intermarriage, the, uh, the unaffiliation, the assimilation. Because what happens when you promote individuality and autonomy? You lose community. You lose community. That's number two. Number three, there's no way to gauge the difference between a secular response from a genuine religious experience. In Korach's world, where the mood motivates the mitzvah rather than using the mitzvah to motivate the mood, how do you know if what you just went through, where it's so subjective, you're not observing an absolute mitzvah given by Hashem, but you're doing what feels right for you, how do you know if it's an authentic, genuine religious experience or if it's uh, a counterfeit experience? What's a good example? Drugs or alcohol. Some can claim to have a credible spirituality through it. But Judaism would say that that's counterfeit. That's not genuine. That's counterfeit. Torah therefore emphasizes it is the mitzvah which reflects Hashem's will. The mitzvah has the stamp of immutability, universality. And that's what Moshe was trying to respond to Korach. That was Korach's rebellion, common sense and personal autonomy. And Moshe's answer was, you think it's me, buddy? I'm not dictating these terms. It's Hashem. The centralized authority is not a human being. It is the creator of the universe. It is the, the, it is the, the master of the universe, the creator of the world. It's the Ribbono Shalom. And that's what we are bound by. We are bound by a system and a methodology of Chochmah. And just like one can never approach mathematics or physics with Das alone, with common sense, imagine I said to a physicist, you know, gravity doesn't make sense to me. I think that when I let go of this book in midair, it should stay where it is. Why should it fall? In my common sense thinking, it should remain exactly where it was. The physicist will look at me and laugh. I'll say, what do you know about physics? Go study physics, go get a PhD in physics, and then you want to have a discussion, we can have a debate. But you're going to ask from outside the system? Same is true with a doctor. I go, this happens, but I go to the doctor and the doctor says, this is my, this is my uh, diagnosis and this is my prescription. That doesn't make much sense to me, doc. I think I should do this. doctor says, how much medical school did you do? How much understanding of human anatomy have you studied? Chemistry, interface of medicine, how much do you know? It's silly. In every other area of life, we would reject a person applying common sense to a body and a field of knowledge. Das the Das approach is not tolerated in science and it can't be tolerated in Torah either. If you want to debate Torah, then get involved. Learn. Understand what was going on between Hillel and Shammai, what is the development and evolution of Halacha to what it is that we have today. But to not ask from within, to ask from without, it's not about common sense. You know, someone once said to me, I'd like you to be my, uh, my healthcare surrogate. I want to appoint you in my healthcare proxy, my halachic living will, to be the one in charge. But I'm concerned because what's your position on brain death? So I said, why do you ask? He said, well, because I've come to the conclusion, I want to be able to donate my organs and save lives. I've come to the conclusion that brain death is death. I want, that's what I want to follow. So I said to him, I said, you know, there's a legitimate approach that says that, but let me ask you. Did you come to that conclusion because you've gone through the sources you went through all of the sources that debate how do we define death, what is the definition of death, is it cessation of, of, uh, of heartbeat, of respiratory function, is it brainstem activity, what is the definition of death, and can you measure that, and how do we know it, and all of the tremendous literature on this. Have you gone through that, and you have come to the conclusion that the side that brain death is death is more compelling? 
So he said, no. I just want to be able to donate my organs and save lives. It makes sense to me to be able to save lives if that's an option. If that's an option. So that's an act of Korach. I don't mean to say that that person, Chas Shalom, is Korach. God forbid, um, or to associate him with Korach or his rebellion. But that mentality is the mentality of Korach. That's not to say there is a halachic position that brain death is death. It is legitimate, it's valid, it is one of the valid positions. And if that person said to me, well, my rabbi believes in that position, that's the position I want to follow. They're perfectly entitled They're perfectly entitled to do that. Let them be the proxy. But that person didn't say that. He said, it makes sense to me to be able to donate my organs. That's what I want to do. You can't apply das. Sit down with chachmah. Let's go spend five, six hours and go through the sources and the tshuvas and the response of literature and let's come to a conclusion together. Or say that I'm going to subscribe to whatever my rabbi says because that's another form of the system of Chachmah. You have a right to choose an authority and go by that. But to say, I'm going to apply my common sense. It doesn't make sense to me. That's Korach's mentality. That's what we reject. Halachic legal system is Chachmah. And you can no more apply Das to Torah than you could to science. That is what's going on here. That is the danger in our own time of those who rebel from centralized authority and seek personal autonomy. That is the response of why it's dangerous and why we must maintain our allegiance to a centralized Torah that comes from the Almighty Himself. It is the mitzvah which is to induce the emotion, not the emotion which is to induce the mitzvah. Yes. That's a different word. That's a good question. That we're not. It's not dot dalad ayin tough, as in we're using it here. Knowledge there. It's dalad tough, which is religion. That's a Hebrew word for religion. So it's a different word, right? It's a different word. Don't forget, Korach said kichala edo. So he wanted some kind of edo, but his edo. That's number one. And number two. He wanted an edo on his terms. Right. But the methodology that Moshe. Um, get a, a resolution was a striking one. He said, you take your fire, I take my pen, and then let God right. choose. So we would need to spend a whole other class on how did... First of all, it wasn't Moshe's response, it was Hashem dictated that response. And there's a lot of to say on that too. Because, you know, the ground swallowed him up, then he has to have the staves blossom. Why do you need two miracles? Why does the staff have to blossom if the ground already swallowed them up? There's a lot of beautiful interpretations on these areas. That's a whole separate study is why did God choose the response in the way He did to, to Korach's rebellion? But today is just a more of an insight into Korach's rebellion. And again, it comes 100% from Rabbi Salavechik. It's in Rabbi Desden's book, Reflections of the Rav. Have a great day. Have a great Shabbos. I'm wishing everyone a fantastic summer. summer.